This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. I'm excited about the guest of today's episode. He's working as a postdoctoral researcher at Norwegian School of Sports Science, nicely ranked as number two in global rankings. He has published influential review and meta-analysis of cardiorespiratory fitness, muscular strength, and risk of type, type 2 diabetes. Please welcome our guest, Dr. Jakob Tarp. Welcome, Jakob. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, so we are here at NIH, uh, which sits atop of a big hill. How, how do you get to work? Uh, I cycle, of course. <laughs> uh, fortunately, I don't live uh, at the bottom of the hill, but uh, uh, I, I, I cycle on like a 10 minute cycle. And All right. if, if I may break a little, then uh, all through August, I've also been swimming before I, I go there. All right, in, in the, the in the Songsvan Lake Line. Yeah. Oh, that's that's impressive. Yeah, it's I think the waters in Norway are are not the warmest. It's uh, seventeen uh, degrees now, so we're kind of hitting my limit. <laughs> All right, yeah, I need I need about twenty five degrees. Yeah, okay. I can I can survive <laughs> in the water. Yeah. So so I find your meta analysis impressive that you did about type two diabetes risk. Uh, what was the main findings of, of this study? Uh, well, thanks. Uh, I think the main uh, findings were that the strength of the association between uh, fitness and, and incident type two diabetes was was stronger than previous uh, meta analysis uh, had. Found we were able to include uh, a much larger number of individuals uh, owing to uh, more published studies and previous meta analysis, and also that contrary to what we had expected, uh, the uh, shape of the uh, dose response association was linear, uh, entirely linear through the spectrum of uh, fitness that we uh, investigated. And we had anticipated it to be uh, non linear, so greater benefits of uh, small gains in fitness if you come from a low fitness uh, starting point. So mm. We didn't see that at all. Yeah, so what was actually the fitness range from how, how low to how high was it in the... Yeah, it, it uh, ranges from, so the population was mostly like middle-aged uh, men and women and in the northern Europe and the US. So the fitness range from very low, which is about uh, 5 mets, uh, to about 14, 15 mets, which is fairly fit, uh, but uh, not like uh, the top of uh, human performance. Mm. So, so still something to explore uh, above uh, that, uh, that fitness level. Yeah, and, and your main finding was that improving one met was related with how much decrease? Uh, 8% decrease. 8% 8, 8% decrease. So basically for very low VO2 uh, max, so they have 5 mets and they improve one, they are then at 6, so it's about 20% yeah. improvement, a bit less, and then for others it's it's a little bit, little bit less if yeah. you have 15. And, and how much do you, did you also check how much do you need to study to improve that amount that you get about eight uh, percent decrease. Um, yeah, we, we we know from uh, from other studies and from experimental studies uh, maybe that uh, most people are able to increase their fitness level about ten percent within four, five, six months. So and and that's uh, possible in all age groups and irrespective of uh, most uh, prevalent uh, diseases. So most people are able to increase their fitness, about 10% in a fairly short time span. Mm. So on the population level, it's it's quite impressive that if we get people to exercise regularly, 
six months to get the fitness higher and then just to maintain that level it would mean like 10% 8% decrease in the type 2 diabetes yeah yeah that's a that's a major potential and I really uh, I really like one new study from uh, Copenhagen where they it was a randomized controlled trial and they randomized overweight um, young adults into uh, leisure time sports so mm. training uh, at, a, at a gym uh, vigorous exercise exercise five times a week 30 minutes uh, or uh, cycling to work or study every day mm. and, and they also had a control group and they found that the gains in fitness in uh, the cycling group were equal to the group that exercised vigorously in the gym five days a week and how, how many people want to do that i i know i would rather cycle mm. And this this study was done in Denmark. Yeah, it was in Denmark. Yeah. Yeah. And and Denmark is quite flat. <laughs> yeah. So so much larger benefits out there. Yeah. 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 yeah so. Uh, yeah, there are feasibility issues that needs to be worked with. Yeah, I don't know how many of our listeners have been in Oslo or know know how how hilly it's here, but it's it's very big hills. It's pretty much everywhere. Yeah. 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 So it would be much bigger effect here than actually there. Yeah, if you could get people to cycle. Yeah. yeah. But uh, like electronic bicycles, uh, mm. aided uh, cycles, I think that's a huge potential. Yeah, yeah. Because I think I saw a study that it's still vigorous activity yeah. for most people, even yeah. if you use the e-bike. So. Yeah, it's still physical activity. I mean, if you, if you compare, okay, you sit in the car or you cycle, so even though it might be a little less intensive, you're still doing mm, exercise. Yeah, and it's much more feasible for people because you can kind of avoid getting sweaty, yeah. which you might want to avoid if yeah. you go into a meeting right right in the beginning of the work day. Yeah, yeah. I have a little bit of controversial relationship with the e-bikes. <laughs> I'm doing mountain biking and sometimes you like really struggling uphill yeah. and somebody like hangs behind you and you're like, shit, oh, what's happening? And, yeah. and, and you don't always see that it's an e-bike. No. Like, uh, I, when that happens, I always check, is there any sign of an e-bike? Yeah. yeah that's yeah. really important, especially if it's like a not-so-young individual going by you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, I think in the future you don't see it anymore like because they can make the engine smaller. So yeah. I think there will be problems for, for us. And and then in the in the study you also not only looked at the cardiorespiratory fitness but you looked at the muscle fitness. Mm. Yeah, because um, uh, yeah, most of the uh, evidence, uh, physical activity and, and health is kind of based on, on aerobic activities, but muscle strengthening activities are gaining in uh, popularity. Uh, so we thought it was important to uh, to investigate if, if uh, hand grip strength as a marker of engagement in resistant type exercises could could also uh, be associated with uh, type two diabetes. Mm. Uh, and we, this was the first meta-analysis on, on that, and we we found a uh, I think it was a thirteen percent risk reduction for a one standard deviation increase in uh, hand grip strength. But we also found a much greater heterogeneity in the results. Mm. So that's some studies reporting uh, really strong associations, and we have some studies finding no association at all. So it's it's much more unclear what is really going on uh, here. And hand uh, mm. strength as a marker of physical activity is probably less robust than uh, maximum fitness. Yeah, it's it's easy to measure, and there's a lot of studies about hand grip strength, but it's always a little bit controversial. That what is it actually actually measuring? Yeah. What what is your take? What what is it measuring? Yeah, that's a very difficult uh, question, and and uh, I, I must say I'm not completely sure, but I am fairly convinced that you are you are tapping into. Uh, a mark of engagement in physical activity. It, to me, it doesn't make sense that this would be completely genetically determined uh, or completely determined through childhood uh, engagement in physical activity. Mm. I, I believe it reflects engagement in 
fairly recent uh, resistance type uh, exercise. Uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, th I think there's many, probably many factors. If if you go to a gym and you lift something, you need to squeeze mm -hmm. with your fingers. Mm -hmm. So basically, that is reflected in the hand grip strength. So it might actually reflect how much you go to the gym. Yeah, possibly. I uh, there, there are some some studies uh, where they have people exercising, uh, experimental, and, uh, and they obviously they find substantial gains in one arms, but only minor gains in uh, hand grip uh, strength. So it may be also be more or less sensitive to certain types of uh, of, of, of activities. Mm, yeah, and it could also be that it's it's kind of if you become frailty or, yeah. or you have a disease condition or you stop being active or your nutrition is poor, you start to lose the hand grip strength. So it's kind of yeah. telling more about the general condition of your your body. Yeah, it's, it's possible. And, and the populations that we included in our study um, for, for hand grip strength, they were, they were older than the cardiovascular fitness uh, populations. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, and I think I I can find an outlier. My father has been has been doing physical work, and and he's over seventy, and he he's much stronger with his <laughs> his fingers than me. We have tested. I always lose. Like there's no chance. So I I think those are outliers. I I think I am more active than him, and maybe even lower diabetes risk. But at least he still beats me at yeah. over seventy yeah, in, in yeah. that. And so you reported as one standard deviation change. Uh, what was the reason to report it in, in that way? Uh, that was the most harmonizable metric that we could uh, that we that, that we could uh, summarize it into. Because it was some studies reported as a as a angular strength per uh, kilogram of body weight, and some studies used just. Uh, what should we say, raw hand grip strength, mm. not normalized, and some studies use one RM. Uh, so, so we had to we had to normalize it, harmonize to to mm. uh, to pull it into the meta analysis. Yeah, and you didn't get from the authors those harmonizable values they had. We requested it. Uh, we yeah. contacted all the authors, but uh, not all were able to to provide them. Um, I mean, if it, if it's a one RM, then it's not possible to. Uh, uh, it's, it's 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 not the same. Mm. Uh, so, I think I think uh, this was a good uh, solution. But what goes into the estimate is is then also the variation in uh, strength in that population. Okay, let's hear a few words from our sponsors and continue after that. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity and energy expenditure. Furthermore, Fibian has been shown to be valid categorizing physical activity into light, moderate and vigorous intensity. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research. So, would you have some kind of... Uh guidelines or tips for people who do yeah. research yeah. that from the meta-analysis point of view that what would I'd, be? Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy you asked that <laughs> because that was a major issue for us uh, in the paper that there really needs to be uh, worked on like a consensus for how do we report factors that are clearly related to uh, body size. Like for fitness is the, the standard, the norm is to normalize it to kilograms of body weight. Mm. So why is that not the case for uh, hand grip strength? So what I would encourage others to do is to, uh, re the least they can do is argue, why do I do this uh, form? Mm. And, and preferably, I would have you do different kinds of normalizations to at least check how robust are your results to these uh, uh, most likely very important uh, exposure choices. Mm. And, and also nowadays, as we have internet and other nice technological things, you could just kind of leave all the data open yeah. that you have all the variables. Of course, sometimes I think hand grip is measured that you just have the screen 
and then the research assistant or whoever writes it down on the paper and then somebody puts in Excel so then you kind of get only the number not like digital values from the measurement but okay. yeah. yeah yeah the optimal uh, way I believe is a measure of lean mass and we see that also for for cardiorespiratory fitness that it should be normalized to lean mass but um, this is a fairly new uh, source of uh, this is a fairly new measurement. Like you, you can get it from bioimpedance. It's not very accurate on the individual level, but mm. I think you gain something in relation to just normalizing to, uh, to to body weight. But it's not available in the historical uh, cohorts. But I, I think mm. it's important to to normalize to the mass. Yeah, it yeah. makes a big difference whether you have adipose tissue or muscle your, yeah, your weight. Yeah. And, and, and uh, we, the, reason, or the whole reason for normalization to body weight is to create an exposure that's independent of body weight. Mm -hmm. So you remove the confounding effect of body weight. But we can very clearly see that after you normalize, you just change the, the, the direction of the association with body weight. So it goes from a positive association mm -hmm. to a negative association. So if you just use uh, per kilograms of body weight, mm -hmm. so you're, you're, you're definitely not getting rid of, of uh, adiposity related confounding. You may be reducing it, but you may also invert it. So you're exaggerating the, uh, the association you see with physical activity because adiposity related confounding. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's still very complex to interpret these um, these uh, fitness uh, metrics, mm, yeah, uh, and we, we, we in our meta analysis, we uh, very clearly kept uh, estimates with BMI control from estimates without uh, BMI control to see how much did that uh, change uh, the associations. And we could see that studies where they did not control for for BMI, they had twice the magnitude of uh, associations mm. so very important to also be very clear is this control for another measure of uh, body weight or not yeah so you normalized for adiposity yeah and and the values for that was from bioimpedance am i right uh if if uh, most studies use just measured weight all right yeah yeah and uh, i I don't think there were any studies that measured uh, bioimpedance and normalized for, for the body mass. We, All right. would, we would definitely recommend that. Yeah, yeah. And and if I go back to the one one standard deviation change, it's it's probably people will be difficult to kind of realize how much yeah. how much is it as a percentage or kilograms? How how, yeah. how would you say? Yeah. Well, again, that's. Uh, that's the black box of the standard deviation. It depends on the distribution uh, in the population that you're measuring. Mm. Uh, but in general, you can say that uh, one standard deviation change is a fairly big change. All right. Uh, so uh, if we look at, um, for instance, uh, cardiorespiratory fitness, where, where we use uh, METS, we have a nice absolute uh, number that we can relate to. The standard deviation there is is about two, three uh, METs. Mm -hmm. So it would mean that uh, an individual will have to increase their fitness about 2.5 uh, METs, which is possible, but it gets progressively harder. Uh, mm -hmm. You need more and more physical activity, the, the more fit you get. So it's, uh, it's definitely a, a lot greater change than uh, for the effect size we're reporting for cardiorespiratory fitness. Yeah. So, from your study, would you say that the cardiorespiratory fitness is still more important for the type 2 diabetes risk reduction? I would rather say that the evidence is uh, more clear. Because, mm. uh, yeah, I, I would like to keep it like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, that's, that's, that's a good point. We need to be uh, exact with what we say. Say, and, and, you use the hand grip. Do you think there would be a possibility to do a meta-analysis of, of some other strength, maybe quadriceps strength or some other big yeah. muscle group? Yeah, that would be, uh, that would be very interesting. Um, I think we came up, uh, upon a 
maybe one, two, three studies where they actually did measure like lower body uh, strength. But that would definitely be uh, be interesting. The good thing about hangar strength is that it's fairly nicely correlated with overall uh, muscle strength, though reflecting overall engagement in uh, mm. muscle strengthening uh, activities. I'm not sure we would get different uh, results using quadriceps uh, strength, but I think it's definitely worth pursuing. Yeah, and, and how many people you had in this uh, muscle fitness part, uh, meta-analysis, how many uh, participants were in total? Uh, in, in the meta-analysis, uh, it was 1.6 uh, million uh, individuals, but 1.5 of those came from one study. All right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. but probably for quadricep strength or any other strength metric, you wouldn't have that kind of number of, of people, I would assume. Yeah. yeah. Yes, and if if we go to the meta-analysis, uh, it is it is a lot of lot of work from from the point of view. What did you learn during the during the process? Well, I learned to appreciate the uh, subtle factors between uh, studies that uh, might make a big impact on the uh, on the final uh, results. Mm. So I I. I think I gained a, f- a few key points to, uh, to to look out for when examining these uh, studies of uh, of uh, fitness and uh, and, uh, and diabetes. And uh, uh, we 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 tried to explore if there were like key characteristics of uh, the studies that could explain an important part of uh, the heterogeneity. Like uh, how did they ascertain the outcome? Uh, how did they measure the exposure? Was it a treadmill or was it a, a, a run uh, mm. Was it a cycle test or was it a run test? Something uh, like that. And we we didn't really come up with the strong uh, implications that these factors were important, but we found clear uh, evidence that the normalization to body weight substantially altered the uh, results and that the adjustment for BMI, as I said, uh, also the results. And these are uh, factors that you, as a researcher doing the analysis, have control over. You don't mm. have control over how did they measure it, mm. but you have control over how you express uh, and, and, and handle the data, the data after it's collected, what you put into the analysis. So these are uh, these were the substantial uh, parts that made made a big impact on the on the estimates. So I think as researchers we need to be more clear about why we do the stuff. Uh, that we do, but don't just do it because it's it's, it's a standard. Mm. Because uh, the, the standard doesn't always have a sound uh, uh, rationale coming uh, behind it. Mm. And I think I think there's kind of a trend that the new scientific papers they should be shorter. They try to get the limits yeah. lower, and also the amount of tables. So basically, it kind of restricts what you yeah. report. Yeah. Although you can give the whole data set with many journals that you can actually publish it, which would, would help when you do meta-analysis. Yeah, that's true. And, and I definitely agree that uh, these short formats, while they may be more readable, they may be less clear communication about the limitations and mm-hmm. other factors, because these are typically the, the stuff that you take out Mm. Of the paper, and you can stick it into a supplementary file, but only the really dedicated uh, readers go to the supplementary file. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, and, and then when you ask for uh, additional data that you would get access, how difficult it is to get from the people the yeah. data. Yeah. So it's challenging. Yeah, that's uh, that's at least what we found that most people were. Uh, they they they. They were not even so keen on reanalyzing their, their data, but mm-hmm. yeah, some some people were very keen uh, on, on doing that. So and that was uh, immensely helpful. Mm. And and do they actually have an incentive to analyze their data? They don't get the name in the publication. What what is the 
we we didn't. Uh, what we could have done was to like uh, establish like a working group where, where people could uh, have more control and maybe contributed to the process and and I think then they would be uh, very they'd be okay with uh, they'd be they have they have an incentive to to reanalyze their their data so mm-hmm. I think that's uh, something. And more and more people are definitely doing this. Mm. Uh, but the problem is that if you go into uh, like a consortium, you also need to have time and money to uh, really put the, the, yeah, the time into doing the new uh, mm. analysis. So maybe some people don't have the time. So when you're trying to set up like a consortium, you may need to include funding for other people to, mm. to, to yeah. work at that. Yeah, and I think it might be difficult. You might change institute, you change your computer, yeah. and, and then somebody's asking for data from 10 years back. Yeah, and, and it's a floppy disk. Yeah, it, yeah, it might be in a floppy disk, yeah. and, and my laptop doesn't have <laughs> a floppy drive, so it, it might be challenging. And even, even a CD nowadays, like... Yeah. Most of the computers don't have CD drives, so it's like, what do you do with it? Like, yeah, yeah. It's, it is challenging. And and is there actually some ethical rules uh, that you need to delete the data after some point, or you need to anonymize it? Did you come up with this in any of your... Uh, we, we didn't uh, experience any uh, situations uh, like that. I think for most large uh, cohort studies, deleting data would be unethical because that would mean if you wanted to revisit some research questions, you'd have to start up a new cohort. Mm. And so I think that would be unethical if you already yeah. have the data. Yeah. I think in UK, in some of the cases, you need to, after five years, you, you need to delete some of the data, I think. Okay. But that. I think that would be that, a, that should be a that should be visited. <laughs> like how is, I think it's some sensitive data or some some kind of I I need to check that up. But mm. Yeah, yeah, and and still about the process of the meta analysis. You started with over four thousand papers. Yeah. Uh, how close did you need to look those in the first stage? It it takes probably quite a much time even to skim through four thousand papers. Yeah, I think that was the probably the the easier part of the. Of the process because we uh, we <coughs> you can pretty quickly see from the title or the abstract that this has nothing to do with the work you are interested in. Mm. The, the searches are fairly inclusive. Uh, so what we did was we did a, which is which is the norm. We did a quick title abstract uh, uh, screen and then we identified the studies where we we needed to look. Uh, Deeper into this, and where there were possible ambiguities, we need to look deeper into this. Uh, and we had two guys doing this, so mm. which is the which is the norm. So, uh, so one guy doesn't get too tired and misses uh, a lot of study working in the evening. Yeah. So, did you do both? Did the same papers or? Yeah, we did. We did uh, both. Did all the papers. All right. I think uh, yeah. you you absolutely have to do that. Yeah, not to, not to miss studies. And then, then you ended up to something like 95 studies that you read full text. Yeah. Yeah. And then excluding from those quite a, quite a bit yeah. still. Yeah. Yeah. And as a process, how long did it take to get to this final paper from 4,000 to? Uh, that took, uh, took a few months. Uh, of, of, of work and we, we were working on other stuff uh, at the same time. Uh, I would say the review, uh, paper review part was, that's, that's, that's not the hard part. It's, uh, you can do that fairly, fairly quickly if you really put your, put your time into it. The, the hard part comes after where you have to harmonize the, uh, the data. And that's not to take away from the review part because if what what you miss there, you are uh, sort of uh, then you don't have a systematic review anymore. If you miss uh, studies, there. Mm. So it's uh, pretty important to be thorough. Uh, but I think we we were. And... Okay, let's hear a few words from our sponsors and continue after that. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian, a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing 
physical activity and energy expenditure. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research. Before we started recording, you, you said that you published a new paper just yesterday in the PMJ. Would you like to tell about this paper? Yeah, this was a uh, work uh, left from uh, here in, uh, in Oslo, and it was uh, by Ulf uh, Egelund. And uh, what uh, we did was that we thought that uh, with the new, uh, with the with with the large cohorts with accelerometer measured uh, physical activity being available and having now some decent uh, follow-up time that it was uh, timely to try to pull them together because it's difficult to compare data from different uh, studies where the accelerometers are processed in different uh, ways. Mm. We all know this is, uh, this is highly influential on, on the amount of physical activity you do. So we asked the authors of the, the cohorts if they could reanalyze their physical activity data according to a common protocol and mm. then uh, we could pull the data in a, in a meta-analysis, so we could really explore the shape of uh, the dose-response association between total physical, uh, total physical activity, live physical activity, and moderate-to-vigorous uh, physical activity with uh, more mortality. So we, we thought we now have much greater detail than we have previously with self-reported uh, physical activity. Mm-hmm. So basically, you included studies that had measured raw acceleration with three-axis accelerometer. Or uh, remember, this is uh, this is uh, back in the days when when these cohorts were established. This was when the actigraph uh, was uh, uh, you know came out and gained mm. hugely in popularity. So this is mostly actigraph and some actical studies with uh, one minute epoch and and vertical axis uh, only. Mm. So most of these uh, cohorts were established in the uh, in the two thousands two thousands. So so studies so like the uh, Haynes and uh, and we also do the women's health uh, study in the, in the U.S. and the regard study in the in the U.S. So some newer cohorts also. Mm. So. You said only vertical axis, so basically it's detecting kind of ground reaction force of local motion or yeah. lack of it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And from from that, you went to analyze sedentary behavior and light, and then moderate to vigorous yeah. intensity activity. Yeah. All right. And and what what were the main main findings in this one? Uh, the main findings were that. Contrary to what you could get from self-reported uh, mm. physical activity, we could uh, clearly see that light physical activity were also strongly associated with uh, mortality. And uh, we could see that for moderate to vigorous physical activity, the association was about twice as strong as we have seen with self-report meta-analysis. And also, the associations were pronounced at a much, much lower dose uh, than from uh, self-report uh, physical activity. So we could see that the maximum risk reduction for uh, moderate to vigorous physical activity was at just 24 minutes per day, and uh, that was associated with a 60% uh, mortality uh, risk reduction. Whereas from from self-report, you would need uh, four or five hours of vigorous exercise to achieve half that uh, risk reduction. So this this is strong uh, public health uh, implications, and we're, with the ability to also examine light physical activity, we can recommend also light physical activities. Mm. Well, what needs to be remembered is that uh, these cohorts are, are, are include mainly middle-aged and elder uh, individuals. So whether the the magnitude of the risk reduction and the uh, level of physical activity needed to achieve that risk reduction, if we can transfer that to uh, a younger population of mm. uh, forty or even fifty years old, that's not that's uncertain at this point. Mm. And and you said middle age and elderly was that. Uh choice you made or you no, that was the available data all right yeah, yeah. we 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 uh, data from the uh, the enhance and from a norwegian p 
PA surveillance cohort and from Swedish surveillance uh, uh, cohort. These include people who were, had an average age of around uh, 50. Uh, so these were the younger uh, cohorts, but the other cohorts, like the Women's Health Study and the Regard Study and the British Regional Heart Study, these are 70 and even 80 uh, years old. Mm. And now, as I'm thinking, the first accelerometers were some time ago, but if you studying all cause mortality, you cannot have really young people because they are not very old, no, even, no, even yet. No. <laughs> now, now, I, now I got the point why, why it was like that. All right, so you found that there was a big relationship also with light physical activity, which haven't been found as strongly before. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how was the relationship between light intensity activity and then moderate vigorous intensity activity to, uh, in relation to all-cause mortality? To, to, to our surprise, the, the maximum risk reduction uh, achieved with the light physical activity was fairly similar to that achieved with the moderate to vigorous uh, physical activity. Uh, but you need much higher levels of light physical activity, so about uh, 300 minutes of light physical activity per day All right. for maximum risk reduction. So basically 300 minutes of light intensity activity compared to 24 minutes of moderate vigorous yeah. was the maximum effect. Yeah. So yeah. if you have a time budget, uh, I know where my money would uh, go, but uh, the it's an important message to show that for people who are not able to do moderate uh, mm -hmm. vigorous physical activities, Light physical activities will bring benefit uh, as well. Yeah, and 300 minutes, it's five hours, and, yeah. and that sounds a lot. Yeah. But actually, when, for example, we have measured it, it's quite common that people have six to seven hours total activity time when you actually are able to measure even the small standing yeah. up and and so on. Yeah. And would you consider that standing goes to light physical activity in this case, or it's no, just from the walking onwards? I, I, I wouldn't, uh, because standing with the accelerometers would, would be zero uh, if they were standing completely still. Mm. Uh, no, I would say that it, light would be like household chores and uh, doing incidental uh, physical uh, activities. Mm. With, uh, that's, yeah, that's yeah. I think it's still a little bit controversial whether standing is is activity. Some of the studies found that, for example, with uh, insulin responses, that standing for normal weight people mm. didn't produce any effects, but for overweight people it was because you need to support oh. a bigger body mass mass in that, and and I think. Some studies have now found that when they do an intervention at work, that they they stand more, and then there's no effects. But actually, when they measure the lesser time activity, so many people probably not very fit when they were standing more in the office, mm -hmm. they were more sedentary in their free time because their legs were tired or or maybe they felt that I have done already yeah, yeah. a lot of things. So, so I think it's interesting. Is standing. Yeah, absolutely. Activity and, or. And with new uh, development of technology and new sensors, I think we'll be in a better position to say something about specific behaviors, like you mentioned. Mm, yeah, That's yeah. Be very interesting. Although to go to all cause mortality, we need to wait some, some to 20, wait. 30, 30 years to, to, wait a bit. to, to do to do the next, next method. I'm, I'm young. Yeah. I'm not sure if. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I can see that. And, and so basically, you, one of your main findings was that compared to self-report, there was the relationship was twice as strong, strong for uh, MVPA, right? Yeah. yeah. And 24 minutes per day decreased 60% yeah. of so, mortality. Uh, pretty substantial uh, risk reduction. And then with a clear... Uh, non-linear dose response uh, pattern, so uh, larger marginal uh, benefits at the low end of the activity spectrum. Mm. So just small changes will, will, will be very beneficial. Mm. 
And I think that on a population level or, or when we are encouraging people to move, that's already a percentage that people should consider it important. If you say someone that, all right, if you just go a little bit less than half an hour a day, mm. 60% yeah. decreased risk. Yeah. That's, that's something Pretty because I, I think with the diabetes risk, if you say people that if you're active, uh, it will be decreased 8%. Yeah. So people are like, all right, I might get the diabetes in 20, 30 years and 8%. Yeah. Nah, it doesn't make a difference. Yeah. It's, it's 30 <laughs> years of, yeah. of sweating and, and, and so on. So I think that's not, but 60%, yeah. maybe we, we get a little bit more people. Yeah, and it's a, it's a more intuitive uh, metric, like uh, physical activity compared to fitness, a consequence of physical activity, but at, you know, much more uncertain uh, levels and intensities and, and all that uh, stuff that goes into to forming an individual's fitness. So I, I think these uh, minute metrics are really, really useful, as you say, in communicating what is it that, that you need to, to, to be doing. Mm, yeah. And basically, with, with the data, it was one minute epochs. Yeah. So... Does it go like that if, if a person during that one minute is doing five seconds really intensive accelerations mm -hmm. and then it would be 55 seconds no accelerations, yeah. it would be considered as light intensity? Or... Yeah, that would be the sum of the, of the, the counts in that uh, minute that would form the classification. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah. uh, and uh, we, we, we know that... Uh, one minute uh, epoch is, is maybe not optimal. Mm. Uh, maybe particularly in, in, in children, but I think also not in, in adults. But we, we just didn't have the uh, possibility to go uh, below mm. the one minute uh, epoch. Yeah, so basically from one minute you have just one numerical value. One numerical value. Yeah. 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 You have, you have also done some studies about cardiometabolic risk factors for, uh, in children. Right. Yeah. 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 So, so what were the main main findings in, in these studies? Yeah. Um, you know, while the while the evidence in in adults is uh, is fairly clear, physical activity is, is good for you, and we need to work on how much and, and what types and, and that stuff. Uh, in, in in kids, it's a little more uh, unclear. Definitely. Uh, what levels of physical activity are needed? What, what is the shape of the dose response uh, pattern? But in general, also how important is physical activity? And maybe specifically for, for body weight, is physical activity associated with body weight in, in case that's still highly debated, even though it may, even though it may be intuitively uh, clear. So what we uh, tried to do was to yeah, using a cross-sectional design, so it has limitations. We, we want to sort of found out if we look at physical activity in relation to a composite score of uh, insulin and blood pressure, triglycerides and cholesterol, mm -hmm. how much of that association between physical activity and, and metabolic risk is explained or mediated by the BMI. So mm -hmm. it, uh, we, we use the IPEC, uh, ICAT <laughs> uh, database, which is a large, uh, large database of uh, physical activity data. Mm -hmm. um, and we found that uh, BMI only explained about 25% uh, uh, of the association between physical activity, motor-to-vigorous activity, mm. and the cluster uh, risk uh, score. So what we think is an important message to communicate from these findings is that you need to do physical activity for physical activity, uh, not for weight uh, management. Mm. Yeah. Not only for weight, uh, weight management. Yeah, so basically that physical activity is beneficial even if Absolutely. it's not, not decreasing Absolutely. the weight. Absolutely, I think yeah. it's a very positive uh, message. Yeah. You don't need to look at the weight to gain health uh, benefits. Mm. And that would also hold true for adults, I would assume. Absolutely, in the, the, the meta-analysis we talked about earlier, we adjusted for BMI. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think 
many people, especially in some countries, they, they see physical activity only as burning calories and then mm. losing weight and then they get discouraged if the weight doesn't go down yeah. and most of the time it doesn't go down. It's, yeah. it's a long, hard process. Yeah, and it's a, compl- it's a much more complicated uh, process because if you, are, if you do more activity, you're going to eat more. Mm. So, and if you, uh, uh, arguments that if you lose weight, the body has a, is programmed to reduce uh, metabolism, to preserve uh, uh, tissue. So, mm. this is a very, very complex uh, system. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, if you move more, you eat more, but if you eat less, you move less. Yeah, so, it's, it's always kind of, yeah. always, always a bad situation. And how do you see that? The physical activity is good even if you don't lose weight but there's also studies showing that for some people they don't their fitness doesn't really improve mm. like there's the non-responders do you think it's still beneficial for their health even if your fitness doesn't improve i think there are numerous uh, biological mechanisms suggesting that uh, the benefits of physical activity are independent of uh, also fitness even though i really think fitness is important but uh, something like uh, uh, clearance of glucose uh, from the bloodstream that's completely independent of uh, fitness that's just mediated by uh, the physical activity uh, that you do. So mm. I think that's a very important uh, biological mechanism suggested. Yeah, and probably that's then related to type 2 diabetes risk and, and probably cardiovascular disease also. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, these uh, clearance of uh, fatty acids and uh, clearance of uh, sugar in the bloodstream, these are tightly connected. Mm. Yeah. So basically, our take-home message is that do physical activity, even if you are a non-responder <laughs> and you don't lose weight, <laughs> it's still still good. Yeah. And preferably, you do it because you actually think it's fun. Uh, what you do, uh, that should be the goal. Uh, uh, you know, we frequently talk about should we do this kind of activity, should we do this kind of activity, and I really don't think that's important. I think mm-hmm. it's just something, it's important to do something that you think is fun, mm-hmm. uh, so that you keep on doing it, because as soon as you stop, you lose the benefits. Yeah, yeah, and not only fun, but just that what you get get done, whether it's even just yeah. standing on while, while working, it's probably not fun. But no. if, you, if you get it done, I, I think most of the people don't get excited yeah. standing around. Yeah, if, if we go a little bit on that one, so you think it's it's fun? What what else could we do to increase the physical activity on a population level? Uh, I'm quite convinced that the sort of uh, low hanging fruits are uh, transportation, the transportation domain. So making sure that walking, cycling public transportation, which would also involve some kind of walking or cycling, uh, is the main uh, transportation uh, mode for most people. Mm. I think that is what we need to, uh, to to put our money into and make sure that our cities are designed to facilitate this and uh, maybe even that workplaces create incentives to make this easier for people. Like uh, if you are uh, working in a, an office building in the city, you may have a free parking spot for your car. So mm. that's money the company is paying for you to place your car. Why don't you get money for or assistance in placing your cycle or taking the, mm. the bike uh, to work? Uh, yeah. I think that's a, that's a fair uh, argument. Um, and like looking at the city of, uh, of uh, Oslo, they, they have a very, very ambitious goal of reducing uh, carbon emission uh, within the next 10 years 95 percent all right 95 percent and a key part of that strategy is to uh, increase the share of uh, walking cycling and uh, public transportation yeah so the the challenges uh, with the climate and they go hand in hand with the uh, with physical activity mm. Yeah, I, I agree that the transportation and then the infrastructure that enables it is, is really important. And I think there's the Copenhagen study mm. that it's maybe three decades that when you start building just possibilities to cycle, mm. people will cycle. Yeah. But I think this is not 
in many, many countries, many cities, the decision makers don't believe. I was living in Liverpool and it's, it's ridiculous. There's bike lanes, but basically the bike lane might be 20 meters and then it stops and there's a sign that cyclists dismount. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't go anywhere. I, I think there has been something that they had to do something. So they added like a few meters here and there. Wow. And, and I think the decisions makers are thinking that, yeah, there's nobody cycling. So why would we have the bike lanes? But nobody's cycling because it's, it's yeah. life threatening. Yeah. The cars haven't used cyclists. There's no bike lanes. It's, it's it's horrible still yeah. cycle and it's a it's a process because obviously like you say there are safety concerns this is not something that will just happen within a few years this is a this is a decade uh, process making it easier to cycle making it more difficult to uh, to take the car you know building uh, larger roads this is going to help the congestion problems mm. No, creating other yeah. sources of transportation is going to help congestion problems. Mm. Yeah. I, I so it's kind of a, an old-fashioned uh, thinking. And it, this does take government-level uh, uh, control. This is not something that will happen mm. on itself. Yeah. And I think the e-bikes will help that then most of the people can cycle, yeah. even if they would have some, some problems. Yeah. Even if not living in Copenhagen. Yeah, it, it always seems to go downhill in Copenhagen. I don't know how they do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's from a physical point of view. It shouldn't be possible if you go to work and back home, but uh, maybe there's there's something. Yeah, so it's it's been very interesting discussions. Would you like to uh, bring other teams into discussion? Other teams? Yeah, uh, something else you would like to oh, say? Okay. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm very happy with the ending with the message of uh, promoting uh, uh, active uh, transportation and uh, that they move more. Sitless is uh, the cornerstone of uh, of uh, public health. Yeah, that's something good to end with. Uh, thank you, Jakob. Yeah, thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com/research. The Physical Activity Researcher podcast has created an activity tracker purchase guide for researchers. Get your free copy from the link in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to the Physical Activity Researcher podcast.